These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we ask now that you would illumine our minds to... Father, grasp your revelation in your word, that which the Spirit freely gives us. Father, we are not born merely of the flesh, of the will of man, but Father, we have been born again by your Spirit from above, by the will of Christ, by your will, Father. So we pray that now, Lord, as we begin discussing the Christian faith and beginning with that supremely fundamental doctrine of the Trinity, Lord, that you would guide us, help us to see, Lord, how it is revealed in your word and help us to, Father, more than anything else, submit our lives, including our thoughts and our mind to your word, that we would be subject to Christ and not Christ subject to us. Father, help us and now hear us, we ask humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. The Trinity is one of those doctrines that is uh, at its foundation fully beyond the comprehension of any man. The Trinity, it's ironic because the Trinity, as incomprehensible as it is, yet is the foundation of everything in the Christian life and in the Christian faith. It's as if uh, we were talking about the sorts of pillars that hold up a building. And some of you have heard me refer to certain doctrines this way, the doctrine of election, for instance. We can't see it. We can't fully uh, discern it. It's not visible to the human eye, and yet we understand that if we are in this building, it's being held up by pillars. It's being held up by things that are unseen. There's no way to be in this building except to be in a building that is held up by that which is indiscernible to the human eye. And so it is with the Trinity. Uh, we can't fathom uh, certain aspects of this great doctrine, of this reality. It's as if we were beginning to climb this mountain whose peak is shrouded in fog and surrounded by clouds. And yet we know that we are on the mountain even as we cannot see the very utmost, the very highest part of the mountain. And that's how it is with the Trinity. We, we can't be saved. We can't be alive. There is no life. There is no world, no creation, no history, no existence, no Christian faith, no redemption apart from the Trinity. And yet how to explain the Trinity, how to, how to make it comprehensible to the human mind 
is beyond human ability. And that's all right. That's all right. As we'll see later on in the second point, the revelation of the Trinity, we submit our minds and our lives to God's word. We submit our minds and our lives to God's word. We believe God when he says he is three in one and one in three. And why do we believe this? Because the Bible tells us so. More on that when we get to that point in the Heidelberg and in God's word. For now, remember the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism that we are in, right? We started out with man's misery, and now we are discussing the salvation of man, right? We're going from sin to salvation, from guilt to grace, and we need to know how we go from the state of misery to the strong castle of the king. And what's involved in this transfer, what's involved in this this relocation of sorts? And the Bible tells us, and the Heidelberg echoes God's word, that there is this blessed truth that this work of bringing us to Christ is the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no redemption without them. Each of these persons is absolutely essential and integral to this work, and each of them is involved in the same work, but in different ways, with different tasks, as it were. The Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 24 uh, tells us the distinction between these persons. God the Father having to do with our creation. God the Son having to do with our deliverance. God the Holy Spirit having to do with our sanctification. And yet before we start in uh, the distinction between the person and the works, it's important to keep in mind the unity of God. And there is perhaps no better word there is no better word that captures this unity than the Greek word perichoresis. Perichoresis or the Latinized form in English, interincession, or the, I'm sorry, the circumincession, not interincession, circumincession. Now, this is a 10 cent word, and what does it mean, all right? It means that before we discuss the distinction of each person and each person's work, we must speak of God's unity. Perichoresis means that there is such an intimate communion between the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that there is a kind of divine, eternal, intimate reciprocity, interrelationship, intercommunication of their persons and works. There are three persons. There is not one person. There are three persons in God. But where one is found, the others are found there as well. Where one works, the others are working as well, right? The Father speaks, and yet the Son creates, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep, we're told in Genesis 1-2. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit stand, and that's just 
but one example in creation. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit stand in the closest possible relationship to each other. Each one of them permeating the other persons. Each person existing in eternal fellowship with the others. Each person not able to exist except with the others. The Father with His Son and His Spirit. The Son with His Father and His Spirit. The Spirit proceeding from the Father and from the Son. And there is in Scripture uh, many texts that tell us this. Uh, you can look at John 10, John 14, John 17, where we have passages as these, I and the Father are one, that they may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Do you not believe, Jesus says, John 14, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That I am in, the, in my Father and you in me and I in you. And then in John 17, it's as if Jesus brings the church into this, this divine inter-Trinitarian society. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says... That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. There is a divine, eternal, relating, reciprocating that occurs in the Trinity. The Father from all eternity begetting His Son, not creating His Son, begetting His Son, generating His Son. The, the Son is always of the Father. There is never a time when the Father does not have His Son in front of Him. There's never a time when the son is without his father. And, and that love that the father has for the son and the son has for his father. That is a person and that person is the Holy Spirit. Eternally proceeding from the father to the son and from the son to the father. Each in turn expressing love in unity, in truth, in, in a way that we cannot fathom we're, 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 we're kind of to the that part of the mountain that is just shrouded in mystery how, how does that look like what does that work I don't know <laughs> scripture doesn't say scripture does say in our text first Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10 and verse uh, verse 11 verse verse 12 no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God for all of eternity the Spirit of God revealing, testifying the Father to His Son for all of eternity. The Spirit of God revealing, testifying, glorifying the Son to the Father. And each of them in turn rejoicing in the glory of the other. Rejoicing in the glory of the three in one and the one in three. The Spirit of God knowing God, comprehending God. The Spirit alone containing God, knowing the, the, the infinite thoughts of God, revealing those thoughts to the Son and to the Father.
<clears throat> and yet, there are certain works, as, as much as we begin with the unity, we must then talk about the distinction between the persons and the distinction between the works of each person. But we can never do so in isolation from the others. To each person is attributed certain works. Uh, the chief author of the catechism says in his commentary, Ursinus, Zacharias Ursinus says, to each person is attributed certain works, but not exclusively, or in such a manner as that these works do not belong to all the persons of the Godhead. And yet one can distinguish the particular works of each person of the Trinity. The works of the Trinity are indivisible, Ursinus goes on to say, but not in such a sense as to destroy the order and manner of working peculiar to each person of the Godhead. So who creates? God creates. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit create. Who saves? Who delivers? God delivers. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Who sanctifies? God does. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet each does so in a way that is particular to their person and their office, as we'll see momentarily. So we start with unity and from unity, we go to the distinction. They are works that are indivisible. You cannot understand them in isolation from the others. And yet there are certain works associated closely with each person of the Trinity. So for instance, let's begin with the father. The father is most closely associated with creation and with the creation of all things. God the Father created all things in the span of six days and said that it was good. God the Father is most closely associated with providence, which is to say that God the Father upholds all things, as we'll see as we work through the catechism. Not only did God create, but God the Father upholds his creation. He governs all things. He is present everywhere to preserve creation so that creation does not devolve into some kind of moral abyss. So that creation is not destroyed by the whims of man. No, creation will be destroyed when God says it will be destroyed on the last day, not a moment before and he does all of this, the Father does, for his glory and for our good. The Father not only is most closely associated with creation and providence, but especially with planning our salvation. In Ephesians 1, it is said that the Father elected, the Father chose us, the Father predestined his people in Jesus Christ the Father, as it were, chose Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant and then chose a particular definite people in Christ that Christ would save. The Father is the one who sends Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't send himself. Repeatedly in the book of John, the gospel account of John, we're told that Jesus says things like, the one who sent me. I do not speak with my authority, but with the authority of the one who sent me. I do not speak my words, but the words I heard from the one who sent me. I do not have authority. I have been given authority by the one who sent me. And who, who sent Jesus? The Father sent Jesus. When did the Father send Jesus? When did the Father commission his son? 
from all eternity past. Having chosen Jesus, having chosen Jesus' people in the mediator, in Jesus Christ. In time, in the fullness of time, we're told Galatians 4.4, Jesus is sent, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were condemned by the law, to bring to them the adoption as sons. The Father sends Jesus and gives him his words, his authority, his works, his mission. He gives Jesus the elect. Everything given to Jesus is given to Jesus by the Father. What about the Son? What is the Son most closely associated with? And here, of course, we would say with salvation. It is no, no exaggeration. It is not uh, theologically inaccurate, but, but the highest level of accuracy to say that Jesus is our Savior. It's not wrong to say the Father is our Savior or the Spirit is our Savior, but especially the Son is our Savior. Why? Because He alone is incarnated as a man, not the Father, not the Son, but Jesus alone, remaining God, takes on human flesh, as we'll see in Romans 8. He is sent by the Father in the likeness of sinful flesh. In order to do his work, the work of sacrificing for his people, sacrificing to God, his work of humiliation and exaltation. It is the Son who reveals the Father. It is the Son that is not only revealing the Father, like pointing to something else. No, the Son is pointing to Himself as the revelation of the Father. If you have seen me, Jesus says to Philip, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Son is the exact representation of the Father. And as the second Adam, the son rules on behalf of his father, representing his father, revealing his father, bringing the kingdom of his father near. He is in so many ways, Emmanuel, God with us. As the second Adam, not only does he represent the father and reveal the father, But as the second Adam, he represents us, is our substitute. And that is why when we talk about union, we speak especially of union with Christ. Do we have union with the Father? Yes. Are we united to the Spirit? Yes. But especially we are united to Jesus Christ. And all that he did, all that he is, is given to us. Through the Spirit, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His intercession in heaven above, these are unique to Christ and they are ours in Christ by the Spirit. The Father and our creation, the Son and our deliverance. And then Catechism 24 says, the Spirit and our sanctification. It's a good, helpful matrix to have in your minds and hearts when we speak of the Trinity, that the Father plans salvation, the Spirit accomplishes salvation, but the the Son accomplishes salvation, and now the Spirit applies salvation. Eternity past, history, our lifetime. All that the Father has planned, all that the Son has accomplished, is of no use to us if it remains far from us.
Unless the Spirit brings the blessings that the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished for us, unless the Spirit brings those close to us. And that's precisely what the Spirit does. He not only brings us all the blessings of the Father and the Son, He brings us to the Father and to the Son by indwelling in us. He is the very presence of the Father. He is the very presence not only of the Father, but of the Son. He is the representative of the Father and of the Son. In John 16, we have an interesting passage again in the last night before his betrayal here on earth. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says, All that the Father has has been given to the Son and all that the Son has will be given to the Spirit. For what purpose? So that now all that the Spirit has and is will be given to you, the church. We have been brought into the revelation of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. How? Through the Spirit Himself. The very power of God, the effectuator of God who brings all things to pass. The very vicar of Christ, the the Roman Catholic Church speaks of the Pope as the vicar of Christ. How blasphemous is this? It's not the Pope. It's not any man. But which man, which mortal, finite, fallen, sinful man knows the thoughts of God? No, the vicar of Christ is the Spirit. The Spirit of God alone comprehends and contains the fullness of God. Revealing the Father, revealing the Son, testifying of the Father, testifying of the Son, bringing glory to the Father and glory to the Son. And this is why you see, brothers and sisters, the the Pentecostal emphasis on the Spirit is completely unwarranted. The Spirit, as it were, is a supporting actor in the background, shining the spotlight, not on himself, not making much of himself, but shining the spotlight on the Father revealed in the Son, the Father who is expressed in the Son, the Father who is contained in the Son, and the Son revealing the fullness of who His Father is in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and in His revelation in His Word. So although we can never fully isolate the three persons of the Trinity, we can distinguish their works. We can distinguish their persons. But here we get to question 25 and the second point, the revelation of the Trinity. Not only do we want to know what the work of the Trinity is, but but how do we know of the Trinity? How do we know of this three in one and one in three? As I mentioned at the very outset, it's one of those doctrines that is not, uh, does not easily resonate with the human mind, right? You can't compare uh, the Trinity to something on earth. You know, it's like a three-leaf clover. It's like, you know, the mind, uh, the, the will, and the soul of man, and so on and so forth. So how do we know about the Trinity? And, and does it require more faith for us to believe and to trust Well, I ask you a series of questions, friends, brothers and sisters. Which is more difficult to believe? Which requires more faith? The creation of the world or the Trinity? Which requires more faith? The occurrence of Noah's flood or the Trinity? 
which requires more faith that the plagues, believing that the plagues of Egypt happened, that the Red Sea was parted in two and the people of God crossed through it on dry ground. What's more difficult to believe? The virgin birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the existence of hell, the return of Christ, the resurrection of God's people, or the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is found in three divine persons. Which is more difficult to believe? At each and every point of God's word, faith in God's word, faith in God is required. That is, you must have a believing conviction and wholehearted trust in God's word. There is not in scripture one doctrine that's more difficult than another doctrine if you believe God's word. At each and every point, faith in God is required. The standard for believing a doctrine, in other words, is never that our mind has completely understood it, approved it, or that it fits into our structures of notions and rationality. The Christian way of knowing is not autonomous. It is rather what theologians have said repeatedly. Epistemology. We have an antithesis between revelational epistemology and autonomous epistemology. Let me explain these words for us for our benefit, all right? Um, epistemology. What is this? This is a study of philosophy. It's a study that answers the question, how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? People have spent their lives trying to understand the basis of knowledge. And the Christian has a way of knowing things. The, the Christian has a way of understanding things. How we know anything is because God has revealed it in his word. He has revealed it to us in the Bible. The Bible is the revelation of God. That's why we speak of revelational epistemology. As we read once more in our text from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If you continue reading on to the end of the chapter... Paul is making a distinction between the natural person and the spiritual person. Between the unbeliever who does not begin with the Bible, but begins autonomously with himself. And we'll get to that in a moment. And the Christian who does not begin with his own rationality, but begins with God's word. The natural person, Paul says in verse 14, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly 
to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is taken in a, in a kind of weird, esoteric, over-spiritualized way. What Paul is talking about here is the distinction between the unbeliever and the Christian. The Christian has the mind of Christ. Why? Because the Christian has the revelation of Christ. Because the Christian has been born again, has been made new, not only in his heart, not only in his soul, but in his, in his mind to think God's thoughts after him. The Spirit alone, knowing God, alone reveals God. We cannot know the nature of God. We cannot, on our own, reason our way up to God if God first does not reveal himself to us. So in other words... We believe God's word in order to know anything. That's the starting point for the Christian. Faith seeking understanding. Do you want to understand? You must humble yourself before God. You must humble yourself before the revelation of God. We, in other words, do not begin with the opposite statement. In order for us to believe, we have to know in order for us to believe, we must figure it out with our rational selves. Your rational self, apart from Jesus, is fallen, is corrupted, is perverted. No. We believe God. We take God at his word in order to understand God. So the question is, how do you know about the Trinity? We know about the Trinity because God has told us in his word. That is the Christian starting point, revelational epistemology. We're out of time here. Wow. Okay. Let's, let's quickly talk about the other side here, the, the other part of the antithesis. The unbelieving way of knowledge is autonomous epistemology. And here, man starts with himself. He starts with his mind. He starts with his life. He starts the Greek auto, self, Nomos, law, he is a law unto himself. Man starts with what he can figure out on his own, what he can reason through, even though his mind is corrupted and darkened. What he can reason through is what he determines he can and will know. His knowledge has as its basis his autonomous self, independent of God and self-willed. Man in his sinful self will determine what is right and what is wrong. And that's why at every point of the Christian faith, there are reasons, our faith is reasonable, but we do not start with the human mind. We do not treat an unbelieving mind as neutral and say, let, let me give you a syllogism to prove the Trinity to you. Let me give you a, a series of logic lessons so that you can understand, so that I can persuade you into the kingdom of God. Their mind is fallen. And, and this is, beloved, why there are a lot of smart people, a lot smarter than you and I. They can run circles around us with their intellect who do not know God. Because it's not that there are no reasons for God, is that they have a heart level commitment against God. 
So why do we believe the Trinity? What is the basis of believing anything? Because the, the Bible tells me so. Not because we have proven it from logic or science. Not because it conforms to our standard of rationality and logic. Not because we have determined that it makes sense or it's reasonable. Did you know that what unbelieving man finds reasonable oftentimes is morally hideous? It's treacherous. But he, in his sophisticated intellect, has reasoned that it is good and true and right and rational. Man uses morally deficient standards for weighing right and wrong, for determining what proves an argument, or for what evidence is weighty enough to make a case for something. And so we see that if man's reasoning were the standard of rationality, the authority by which knowledge and truth is determined, then the Bible becomes subject to man. But rather we say and we confess from the Bible that man is to be subject to God. God is true and let every man be a liar. We start with not our knowledge in ourselves, but with what God has revealed to us in his word. We believe the Bible and thus we believe in the Trinity because the Bible tells me so. One last point before we finish here. If you want to understand this, at a biblical level. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man is in Hades being tormented because of his sin. He has died in his sin. And he is speaking to, to Father Abraham. And what does, what does the rich man say to Father Abraham, right? Send, send me, send someone from the dead, right? They'll believe They'll believe a miracle. They'll believe this, this wondrous proof. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone should rise from the dead. We have Jesus. We have his revelation in his word. We have his revelation in creation. Jesus worked various Tons of miracles. And what did the unbelieving mind do? Yawn. Meh. Right? We want him to do what we demand. We want him to speak in the way we demand. The whole of creation proves God's existence. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is no proof of atheism. There is nothing, nothing in this world that disproves God. The triune God. And we begin there. We begin in the revelation of God, in his word and in the world. We're, out, we're way out of time. Let's uh, conclude in prayer. <clears throat> our Father and our God, do help us to understand this distinction. And that, Father, we would always take our starting point in your word. Help us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.